This is a story about the stories we tell. My name is Noor Tagori, and I've been telling stories my entire life. I've spent the last few years examining a more personal one, one about how the misrepresentation of Muslims in American media has impacted our culture and society. And I thought I knew the story because, well, I thought I knew my story. Yes, the common narrative has been getting it wrong about Muslims since America's conception. But also, like any rigorous investigation, the more I looked for singular, clear answers, the more questions I had. During this journey, something extraordinary happened. The stories I thought I knew intimately were still alive, breathing, yearning to be heard and told. And whenever I would forget that they were still evolving, this experience put me right back in my place. The place of a witness. I had to surrender to the stories over and over again. I learned there's a difference between controlling a narrative and being curious about it. So like Alice, I followed the white rabbit into Wonderland, and I decided to take an unexpected path that led me into a broader exploration of the ever-evolving story of America, of what it represents, of what we as a culture, a society, as individuals really represent. This is Rep. Oh my God, they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. Run for it, Marty! Who, who, who do you think? The Libyans! Back to the Future. It showed Libyan terrorists with a van and guns shooting at the people, or the white men. Doc and Marty? Yeah. Meet Yassine, my 11-year-old brother. He's the kind of kid who understands his emotions better than most adults. He'll let you know if something makes him uncomfortable, and if he senses that something is off with you, he'll check in. On my hardest days, he's the person I FaceTime first. I care a lot about what he has to say. Doc just yelled, quick, the Libyans are coming, take cover. And I thought, like, that's a bad representation about Muslims and who Muslims and Libyans really are. It just really hurt me how they put that. But I can understand why they put that, because they were afraid. And at that time, it was with Bush, I think, was it? Mm, It was way before. Way before? Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And there was something about Libyans and terrorists and all that. Mm-hmm. Did you think about that after you watched the movie? Yes and no. Because I was thinking about the later parts in the movie because it was funny. <laughs> yeah. So I I forget stuff quickly mm-hmm. in the movie. Mm-hmm. So I would remember the funny part mm-hmm. instead of the hard part. I had to sit with that. 
remembering the funny part instead of the hard part. When I had first watched the movie, my own thoughts were more inconclusive. I was so surprised to hear the word Libyans in a blockbuster film that it wouldn't register to me until years later that one of my favorite childhood movies, which came out in the summer of 85, contributed to a bigger narrative. One that would make it harder for Americans to figure out their own feelings about a bombing raid President Reagan would order on Libya less than one year later. We Americans are slow to anger. We always seek peaceful avenues before resorting to the use of force. And we did. Gaddafi continued his reckless policy of intimidation, his relentless pursuit of terror. He counted on America to be passive. He counted wrong. I said that we would act with others if possible and alone if necessary to ensure that terrorists have no sanctuary anywhere. Tonight, we have. 35 years later, well, it brings back the whole memory. The attack was carried out precisely as planned. It was, as the president said, evidence of very great skill. All of the targets were terrorist-related, and the criteria for selecting the targets was that they would have a full terrorist connection, that we would minimize any collateral damage from civilian or uh, other uh, facilities nearby. That's the voice of Casper Weinberger, then Secretary of Defense. I remember when Casper uh, Weinberger and uh, the Minister Schultz had their uh, interview with the journalists. This is my Khalu Mohi, my grandmother's eldest brother. He once told me a story about how easy air travel used to be before 9-11. That he had even been able to fly with his 9mm revolver he bought from the Big D Fair in Dallas. I picture him in his cowboy hat and blue Levi's, with cheekbones that sit extra high, just like my grandmother's. An all-American, Libyan cowboy. That story felt like fiction. Khalomohi also never misses the evening news. He often recorded and archived the news. In fact, all of the archival audio you'll hear in this story is a result of him pressing the record button. In 1986, he was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And on April 15th, ever committed to his evening news routine, this time on a two-inch portable TV during his son's baseball game. My great-uncle witnessed the breaking news that he would have to break to his family. News that would change everyone's lives forever. The U.S. airstrike on Libya. As soon as they mentioned the French embassy was hit, so I immediately picked up the phone to call my uncles. And I kept calling and calling and calling. Both uncles, I have their phone, and uh, no answer. So then I called my sister, which she lives about half a mile from them. I said, send your husband, please, to go and check on them, because I think they demolished their villa. And I'll stay on the line with you until he goes and come back to tell us. So she was wondering, how come, I mean, I'm telling her this, from Oklahoma. From Oklahoma, and she's in Tripoli. 
I said, what happened? Did you hear anything? She said, yeah, we heard a big explosion and all the glass, the windows in the building shattered. So I said, then your uncles are completely vanished. She said, why are you, why are you saying that? I said, just send your husband and let him check. So he went and came back and he told her that the building is not there anymore. My mama was 15, living with her family in Annandale, Virginia. I think when we were watching CNN and saw the body of one of my uncles right there laying in the morgue of the hospital, I think it solidified what happened and we realized that everybody was gone. And I just remember my mom crying. I remember, you know, phone calls and the other people in Oklahoma are crying, which is my uncle's family. I just remember a lot of panic and crying. Of course, CNN, ABC, CBS, all the channels brought live pictures from Libya. And of course, we saw our family's uh, property completely demolished. They didn't even find any intact body. All they found is scattered pieces of meat and bones. And I remember I just wanted to kind of run away from all that. So I actually asked my mom that I wanted to go to school. So can you imagine like all this is happening and I don't want to skip school. I wanted to go to school because I thought if I just go to school, then everything will be all right and I'll just act like nothing happened and it would go away. So I actually ended up taking the bus and going to school with all this panic and pandemonium happening at my house and I thought I was going to be fine. The minute I get there, I don't recall exactly what happened, but I just broke down and cried in school. And so my teacher sent me immediately to the counselor's office and the counselor was like, you know, what's going on? Why are you crying? And then I told her, like, we lost a bunch of family members. Because, I mean, obviously everybody knew the bombing happened. Did this incident change your perspective on America at all? Or the family's perspective on America? No, I have always admired the American people. I have my ideas about the different American governments, but the American people are always great. You're going to be calling me Baba or are you going to call me uh, Dr. Tajwari? Dr. Tajwari. What would you prefer? If you're going to be publishing it, Dr. Tajuri. <laughs> okay. All right, Dr. Tajuri. This is my dad. He was born and raised in Benghazi, where he went to school. Okay, so in 1986, I just graduated from medical school, and I started my internship on March 1st. I remember that day very well. 
and I had to do rotations at Ajamuri Hospital, which is one of the oldest hospital in Benghazi. It was built during the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Anyway, we were doing good until April. I still remember the explosions of the Berlin Bar killing two soldiers. Two American soldiers. Two American soldiers, yes. Gaddafi used to recruit students to be his bodyguards. And those students used to be in the university carrying uh, the Kalashnikov, which is uh, RK-47, and uh, they were bragging about it. One day in March, I remember, there is a guy came with a suitcase full of money and he was telling me that he's going to eastern uh, germany in a mission trip and he left and uh, he came back and i know that he was doing a lot of missions for gaddafis not long after that we heard about the berlin bar and the two american soldiers were, were killed becoming a doctor wasn't exactly his first choice He was more interested in nuclear engineering. But knowing he didn't want to go anywhere near Gaddafi's regime, his parents advised him to pursue medicine instead, thinking that might lower the probability of him being forced to join the military. School and work were his keys to getting out, and getting out of Libya was on his mind for most of his life. He had witnessed horrifying scenes like public hangings of men, including some of his own friends. I've heard stories about this since I was young. One of the times that I had traveled to Libya, I remember every establishment I had walked into had this huge portrait of Muhammad al-Gaddafi. And I remember asking, is this because everybody loves him so much or is there something else going on here? And people told me that it was a requirement. Some of the reasons for public execution were for voicing your opinions about Gaddafi or even something as simple as attending the mosque for morning prayers. When I asked my dad for confirmation on these reasons, he did a very Arab dad thing. He had me call one of his friends, Ammu Hussein. Ammu is the Arabic word for uncle. He's not my real uncle. We've never even met. But the world is small, and we're all universally related anyway, right? I stood up during the lecture, and I said, who has any comments? So I raised my hands at me. I stood up, I talked for almost maybe 40 minutes. And I said, Gaddafi is number one enemy to Islam. Gaddafi number one enemy to his people, to his country. In 1988, so I said, Gaddafi, you need to open the country, open libraries, open people, the media. You need to stop. So I talked to his people. I finish and I call Gaddafi crazy. I call he is not Muslim. He's against Islam. At night, they came, they took me to jail for 12 years. During his time as a political prisoner of Gaddafi's regime, Amu Hussein was to witness the Abu Salim prison massacre that is estimated to have killed over 1,200 people. A massacre that Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the U.S. State Department would all press for justice for its victims. I was watching everything because I was one of those uh, service members 
in the kitchen. We cook, we clean, we do everything, we do maintenance in the jail. So I was hiding there when the thing clashed started between the prisoner and the Gaddafi security group. And next day, after they went back to their cells, they don't have any weapons. He killed them all in three hours. After he was released from prison in 2000, Amr Hussein would go on to become an activist for justice, speaking out for awareness of the prison massacre and against the Gaddafi regime. Back to 1986. So of course, when America comes in with the mission to take their dictator out, Baba is ready as a doctor, knowing he may have to attend to what governments refer to as collateral damage. And for him and his friends, who had lost all hope for the future of their homeland. We, as a group of educated young Libyans at that time, all we wanted to do is to leave uh, Libya. We lost a lot of hope that there will be any changes that help uh, building Libya. America brought the bombs, which, to Dr. Tajuri, offered a false hope. I remember that a lot of my friends, colleagues, we were cheering for the American because we thought this attack might bring Gaddafi down and liberate Libya. Were you a part of that group that was cheering? Yes, yes, I was. We were joking, we were saying that is his house. This is when the world starts to feel really small. My dad is in Benghazi. My mom is watching this all go down in Virginia. They're worlds apart. And it isn't until years later that my dad finds out that the collateral damage we've been talking about was actually my mom's family. And how many family members total? Five. It was my uncle and his wife, my other uncle, their son, and their granddaughter. Who was there, who was sleeping over. Yeah, sleeping over because she was doing her homework. And then her mom just thought, okay, I'll just let her stay the night with her grandparents. And their son, my cousin, he was engaged actually to be married. A young man, I believe in his 20s at that time. I thought by just going to school, I'm going to like put it away and it's just going to be fine. It's like you want to run away from what happened. Yeah, so you try to do, like, what your normal routine Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to keep it going, keep the routine. I don't want to, like, see my mom break down and have this whole thing be a reality. So I wanted to run away, but I thought I could. My young teen self thought I could run away, but I... Yeah, you were protecting yourself. Yeah, but I, I it, it, like, followed me to school, obviously, and I just broke down there. Khalumuhi, our favorite Libyan-American cowboy, was also worlds away in Tulsa. He had moved there in 1979. You were just telling us, like, you had the choice between Australia and, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you went with Tulsa. Why did you want to come? What were you leaving? Well, I was leaving Gaddafi's regime. And at the beginning, his first few years, everybody thought he's young and he is very down to earth, and he wants to rule Libya with the people of Libya. But then as years goes on, we discovered that he was just a tyrant creeping. 
And what did you see in America that you felt like would be a better place for you? I came to the United States because of the Constitution of the United States. I went to school in 1966 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I felt the warmth of the people of Oklahoma and the democracy in this country and the good people. What about the Constitution stuck with you? What stuck with me is the Constitution that uh, everybody is equal, everybody is under the law, nobody is above the law. And I felt it and I witnessed it in my daily life here. The kindness of the people of Oklahoma, the warmth of the neighbors and the rights of everybody. Nobody is different from anybody. When was the first time you personally felt represented in media? Well, when they covered the American raid, I don't know how many TV stations came to our house. In fact, we lived in a cul-de-sac, and there was at least seven or eight trucks with uh, old towers and dishes. The broadcast towers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were there for maybe half a day or so. Would you say that that coverage was the first time when you watched television you saw something you could relate to? Yes. I mean, even the people here, most of the people in the States, I mean, when you say Libya, they say Lebanon or (laughs) Bolivia. That's even when I was in school, when I would say Libya, that's what people would say. Nobody, yeah, nobody knows about Libya. Do you remember the film Back to the Future? Yeah, I think they mentioned Libya. (laughs) (laughs) TV, film, any pop culture is a powerful pen, one that documents the way the stories of our societies are currently being written. There are moments, scenes, even specific news broadcasts that commit to memory as touch points for the narratives of our lives. For Mama, who's been watching CNN for decades now, Her relationship with the cable news network actually starts the day the network confirms what actually happened to her family. What do you remember feeling or seeing with that CNN footage? Because I remember you saying that's how you really found out. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because I don't remember a lot of things about my childhood, but that I still, the image of the TV screen with the bodies. And they weren't even really covered. On CNN. Yeah. And so we saw my uncle. Actually, he is an uncle that never got married. And so he would come to my grandmother's house all the time to eat dinner. He would bring me Mentos every single (laughs) time he came to my grandmother's. And so he was the cool uncle that wore a suit when he came. You know, we loved him. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So what was your relationship or like the household's relationship with the television, with what was happening on the news when this was going on? I don't really remember us really watching TV. I mean, at that time, cable TV or anything was literally like two, three channels. 
And if anybody watched the news, it was my dad. Like, I never watched the news. I just remember we watched Family Feud as a family, and that's it. Like, I don't, I just remember, of course, my family being glued to the news when this happened. It's 1986. Gaddafi is still alive. My mother is a teenager glued to the TV in Virginia. And my dad is plotting his escape. America for us was a superpower, similar to Russia. At the time, it was the USSR, Soviet Union. But it was a Western world, an open country, and a country of opportunities that people liked, and they get connected with American dreams through the movies, Hollywood movies, played a major role with the youth. I call my dad a walking encyclopedia. He'll never tell you a story without history and context, including his own. Was I looking forward to come to it? I said, no, I was not looking forward because all I need is to get out. And if you know that uh, when I left Libya, I wanted to migrate to Australia. That was the opportunity for me to go there. However, it didn't work out. With the will of God, I ended by coming to the United States. Bob was settled in Huntington, West Virginia, where I was born. And while my family is full of storytellers, Baba is one of the main reasons I am where I am today. He kept a camera in my face since the day I was born. It became tradition for me to ask him, When is it news time, Baba? News time was when I would turn my hand into a fist as a mock microphone and report live from wherever we were at the moment. A few years later, he would tell me the thing I loved doing so much, that was called journalism. And knowing firsthand the importance of a free press, Baba takes journalism very seriously. It wasn't until this conversation that I realized where my father's deep value of objectivity comes from. You see, like Khalumuhi, Baba also consistently consumes the news. You have to read. You have to know your history. Those are two lines I can still hear echoing in my head from childhood. Objectivity is fundamental in the work he does as a doctor. He believes that objectivity is also vital to the work I do as a journalist. I kind of disagree. For me, journalism is a very important job. A journalist should say and limit themselves to the fact. And they cannot be biased to one side or another. Let the listener make the decision of the truth. There is three sides of the truth. Side A, side B, and the real thing. Okay? And a journalist should say exactly what side A says and exactly what side B said and walk away and let the listener or the watcher or whoever make a decision who's right, who's wrong, was it correct or not? Make me decide which evidence is the truth. Like a jury, we're missing this today. 
Totally. Totally. We're missing it. So I think in the course of my work, and even when I was trying to pitch you to join this conversation, your concern was around objectivity and remaining unbiased. And essentially, if we put ourselves in the story, then there is going to be a very specific point of view. And I think what I'm finding in this journey is that if we want to seek out truth and understanding of people we are not familiar with or people who we do not understand or people we may be afraid of, then it's important for us to know our personal stories and understand where we came from so that we can understand how we adopted our own points of view. Well, yes, that is where you become activist, but not generalist. When you know your life and your story and you understand it and you preach it, but someone else will not going to agree with your point of view. Okay, so that makes you an activist from my point of view. That used to be a trigger point for me, calling me an activist instead of a journalist. For the last 13 years of my journalism career, People and the press have consistently referred to me as an activist simply because I choose to wear a headscarf, but I was just trying to do my job, to ask questions and tell stories. I'd even shadow journalists who worked at big networks, and some would tell me that my hijab immediately created a bias. There was one CNN writer who would later become my professor, and he said to me casually over dinner, can't you just take it off for the broadcast and then put it back on after? And I get where he was coming from. Traditionally, to be impartial meant that your identity has to take a back seat. But for this to be totally true requires there to be a default. And the default storyteller has traditionally been white men. While I believe it is critical to be fair, report facts, and give space to an audience to come to their own conclusions, I also believe it's important that as a storyteller, I consider who is telling the story, what makes them them. Because sometimes that context is actually important to consider when receiving a story. The landscape of news and media is changing by the second. There are less limitations around who gets to tell stories than ever before because of things like access, information, and the spaces to build an audience. But the challenge for representation, proper representation, isn't over. And it's been a long road to even get here. So what was the landscape like in 86, the week of the raid? Let's go back in time and consider the handful of voices creating space for that story. There's one name many of you will remember, Phil Donahue. And Donahue would bring together experts and his audience to share perspectives on different topics. Continues now with Donahue. And in this episode, they specifically spoke about the attack. I put this question to you. Um, First, imagine how it feels to live in a country that could be destroyed in seconds by an American nuclear decision in a quarrel that perhaps it wasn't a party to. Every other country in the world lives daily with that reality. And our view is that uh, 
we should have no annihilation without representation. If your president is going to uh, posture as the leader of the free world, he has to listen to non-Americans if he claims to speak for them. Let me usurp Mr. Donahue's role for a second and ask you a question. It's a big risk one takes asking a rhetorical question, but how many of you feel safer than you did four days ago? What's the matter? It's morning in Colonel Gaddafi's Libya. I think that... Colonel Gaddafi is still there. The... His little daughter is dead, but he's still there. The Libyan people are still there. Donahue was a predecessor of Oprah, who I grew up watching. And like her, Donahue was known for holding conversations between his guests and his audience. Lively debates, high and low culture mixing. It was one of those shows on in the afternoon when kids were coming home from school. Uh, I personally don't agree with the bombing, and I feel that we just added fuel to the furnace. But I have a question. Why does Gaddafi hate us so much? I really don't understand that part. Well, <laughs> mm. you have Palestinian Arabs who have been living in camps for half a century and who are saying, hey, wait a minute, what about us? And uh, you also have males who have lost wives and children. And they look up and they see the hardware and they believe that it's us, that the bomb says made in America. And alarming numbers of them are saying, I will make you pay for this. I will, till I die, make you pay. Now, what do you do with that attitude? I just don't like the attitude of my two sons who, after hearing all this on the news, came home and said, yeah, we kicked their mm, yeah. and so gung-ho. You know, we're opening up a whole kettle of... What do you say to your sons when they 16, say that to you? I really didn't know what to say for a minute, to be very honest. I had to think about it's it. It's very tough. I, it, yes, it is. Those voices you're hearing come from Donahue's audience members and his panel of three experts. The experts include Michael Binion, a British journalist and prominent Moscow correspondent. There's Sanford Unger, author and professor. He was the last to speak. The first voice we heard may be familiar to some, the aggressive British man who asked if the audience felt safer after Reagan bombed Libya. That's the journalist Christopher Hitchens. In 15 years' time, he would become a major voice for the war cheerleaders after 9-11, quite the opposite of how he comes across in his younger days of this Donahue appearance. Later in the show, there occurred something we would never see or hear today, at least not with this sort of candor. One of the panelists, Sanford Unger, calls out his own presence on the stage. He asks Donahue why he was given the mic, and specifically... Why in that moment? Make your point about a media, Mr. Unger. You're the only uh, Native American here. Let's, uh, let's hear your uh, objective <laughs> no, analysis. I think the great problem in all of this, Phil, is we only look at it through our own eyes. You want to talk about foreign policy? You get three white men here to talk about foreign policy. Mm, yeah. What about that vast majority of the world yeah. who are not white males? I, I'm, we're, we're all delighted to be here today. I understand the constructive yeah. purpose. But we don't look at the world. We don't look at what's happening through the eyes, the hearts, the feelings of others. We only look at it through our own eyes. That's what Sanford Unger said. And he meant it. He wasn't selling anything. He had no agenda other than an intrinsic call to dignity. But it wasn't heard. Not then. And it's still not being heard now. To look at what's happening through the eyes, the hearts, the feelings of others. 
This episode of Donahue represents the meeting of public opinion and pop culture. The audience is voicing public opinion, literally handed the mic by Donahue. The experts shared their opinions of the politics of the day, and that evolved into the pop culture of the moment. <laughs> Rep. Yes, please, Shahid Halib. Discovering the Donahue episode my great-uncle taped on his VHS brought me to tears. Witnessing the nuances in each audience member's perspective on this attack, I find myself nostalgic for these kinds of discussions. American attacks in other countries today don't get this kind of concentrated major network platform for public opinion. So this felt like a big deal. Do you ever remember hearing about Libya in the media before that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Qaddafi, 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 Qaddafi. Like, oh, so not Libya, but no, Qaddafi. Yeah, yeah, totally. Qaddafi. Because anytime anybody asks, like, oh, where are you guys from? Whatever. And if we say Libya... It would be like, oh, Qaddafi, oh, Qaddafi. And then you had, like, you know, people asking questions. It's like, I don't know anything about him. Like, I didn't grow up under his regime or whatever. So I, I'm uncomfortable, actually. And when a lot of people thought I was a Latina anyways, I just went with it. <laughs> <laughs> what about when Libya started being mentioned in pop culture? I mean, there's the reference in the Back to the Future film that came out a year before the bombing happened. Do you remember ever having any feelings towards that? I mean, you just let it roll off your back, I think. But at the same time, deep down, it bothers everyone. But I, I don't think I even understood what that discomfort was when I was so young. Like now I look back and I understand why we felt that way. But at that time, you don't realize what you're feeling. Well, when was the first time you ever felt properly represented in media? Properly represented? I still don't feel properly represented. What are you talking about? Really? Yeah. How are we properly represented? I mean, I don't see it. Khanum doesn't just consume news. He dissects it. Actually, the reason he knew he wanted to leave Libya as early as he did was because he would listen to Gaddafi's broadcasts over and over, noticing patterns and promises he was making. His media literacy is what gave him the tools to make some of the biggest decisions of his life. And I want to get specific about some of these tools. Pop culture, of course, influences the people. And some naive people will not dig for the truth. Some naive people will listen to their presidents, what they tell them, thinking that presidents won't lie to them. So do you think politics influences popular opinion or popular opinion influences politics? Like, what do you think the relationship is with the three? I think the three are intertwined, but they affect each other. 
And uh, what I'm afraid of is the new media, the Facebook and the other uh, new media, uh, which is full of lies. Most of the people are naive and they don't think, I mean, they think what they read is the truth or what they see is the truth when uh, that's not a fact. You've always just looked for truth. Exactly. Are you still looking for truth? I think since we are born, we're looking for the truth. We grow up looking for the truth and we die without reaching the real truth. A lot of people think uh, when they read something or they see something, they, they think, oh, that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. I have learned a good lesson when I was maybe 15 or 16 years old. I have read a story about four people who were sitting in a little cabin in a train traveling in Europe. And in that cabin, there was an old lady, a young woman, 20, 25 years old woman, and a Nazi soldier and a French farmer. That train went into a tunnel. So everything was pitch dark. At that moment, they heard a kiss then a slap, then the train came out to light again. So the old lady, she said, good for her. They tried to kiss her, and she revenged for her honor. The 25 years old girl said, what stupid guys. They kiss the old woman, and they leave me. The Nazi soldier said, God damn it, this farmer kisses the girl and I get the slap on my face. (laughs) So then the farmer said to himself, good, I kissed my hand and I slapped the Nazi. (laughs) So from that time, when I heard that story, I have never judged anything that I see or I hear 100%. I'm amazed to see people accusing other people with things that they thought they saw or they thought they heard. So that's why I said, we live and die without knowing the real truth. I've been saying something for years that I didn't entirely understand until I reported the story. In order to know each other, we need to know ourselves. We need to know who and where we come from. Like my Baba says, know your history. Like many multicultural kids, the couple of times I had the privilege of visiting my family's motherland, I loved it so much the hospitality, culture, getting context of my own roots. I also didn't entirely feel like I fit in. 
My cousins made fun of my broken Arabic, and I still often think about how I am not yet able to fully, clearly communicate with my family members whose mother tongue isn't the same as mine. Here in America, there have been many times I've felt the same sense of strangeness. Like, what does it mean to actually be American? And what is the role of America's own story around the globe? An American history professor once told me casually over dinner that he believes story is America's greatest export. What if this is true? Would that explain how it wasn't until I rewatched Back to the Future as an adult that I realized our favorite stories can also help produce the scripts for unexpected nightmares? The stories we tell each other are alive and breathing, ever evolving and waiting to be shared. While working on this episode, I dreamt about my ancestors who were killed in the U.S. air raid 36 years ago. I saw and felt them, viscerally and intimately. It was like they knew that this part of their story was finally being told, and they visited me as evidence of our connection. Now that you've gotten to know me and my family a little better, I'd like to reintroduce myself to you. My parents named me Noor al-Huda al-Tajuri. It means the guiding light. For this series, Rep, stories will guide us together to challenge the concept of the value of representation. And I invite you to witness and experience them. And, of course, yourselves. As always, at your service. Rep is a production of At Your Service, School of Humans, and iHeart Podcasts. The show is written and produced by me, Noor Tajuri, and Zaren Burnett. Editing, sound design, and scoring by Josh Fisher. Original theme song written and composed by Maimona Youssef, also known as Mumu Fresh. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock. Our associate producers are Tyler Donahue and Betsy Cardenas. Mix and Master by Bahid Frazier. Audio Assembly by Mary Dew. Our executive producers are Adam Kafif, Zaren Burnett, Jason English, and me, Nortagori. Audio from The Phil Donahue Show, courtesy of NBC Universal. Special thanks to Virginia Prescott from School of Humans and Will Pearson from iHeart Podcasts. I'd also like to thank Muhyiddin Eliazi. Salwa Tajuri, Yahya Tajuri, Yasin Tajuri for trusting me with these stories. And thank you, Sosan Eliazi, who helped process Khalu Muhi's archive so we could use it in this podcast. If Rep resonated with you and you'd like to support our show, please rate and review and share it with someone else you think may enjoy it. We'll see you next week. I'm Noor Tajuri, as always, at your service. <laughs>